Well, I posed a question to myself this week, and my question was simply this. If I could only have three foods for the rest of my life and health considerations were not, you know, an issue, what would I pick? And I would pick eggs. I love eggs. Uh, Sourdough bread. And Karen's carrot cake. (laughs) Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm I'm just telling you what. Uh, Our first church, I didn't know crap from apple butter about being a pastor and i went and pretty much wrecked this church in three years uh they built 100 spent 150 years building it this congregation some of the original people were still there and uh, i'm a kid out of seminary you know i go busting in here what we're gonna do but, but the one thing we did come away with that church come away from that church with after three years of ministry was edwin Byers carrot cake recipe so god can redeem anything but I, I just, if I had, if I could only have three, it would be, it would definitely be eggs. I love eggs. That's why we have our own chickens. We raise our own eggs. Uh, and sourdough bread, love it. And then Karen's carrot cake. If I could only know three things about Jesus Christ, it would be this: Son of God, Son of Man, reigning King. Son of God, Son of Man, reigning King. These are the core realities of knowing Jesus. This is the, this is the, this is the central part of Jesus Christ, and the thing from which all the rest of our lives flow. Today in this third message of a three-part series, I want to talk about Jesus being the reigning king. Turn in your Bibles, if you have it, to Philippians chapter 2. If you don't, I'll put it up on the screen for you this week. Philippians chapter 2. We're going to look at the first 11 verses and see if what I'm saying is true. Because if we can't find what I'm saying in the Bible, it ain't true, okay? Don't believe me. Don't ever believe me if we can't find what I'm saying in the Bible. Don't ever believe anybody. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11 starts out by Paul saying, If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, any comfort from His love, if any fellowship with His Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. This is, this is the heart of Paul. This are, Paul could be a tough cookie, right? You've been reading your Bible thing, anybody? And you get in there and there's some pretty harsh stuff. But here he exposes his soft, chewy center right here. And he says, look, if you guys have gotten anything from Jesus, then love each other. Be one. Be one. Be one. Just be like-minded. Come to the same place in Jesus. This isn't just the heart of Paul. This is really the heart of every pastor. At least every pastor. I don't know all the pastors in the world, but every pastor I know, our heart is for the church to be one. Church and all of its beautiful diversity. I love diversity. But that we would come to the place of being united in Christ and would be one. And then, uh, he, and then he goes on by talking in the next couple of verses about the outward focus. Uh, he says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. So I love that. Each one of you should look not only to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Wow. Okay. But what Paul's saying here is he says, as believers, you know, as believers, our heart should be towards serving one another. And if we have a competition in the church, if there's a competition anywhere in the church, I'm not a very competitive person in general, but uh, if there's a competition in the church, it should be to this, that we should be competing with each other to dive for the bottom of the pile. We should be the dumpster divers. We should be the ones who are diving for the bottom of the pile. That what we're looking for is not to be elevated and recognized, but to dive for the bottom of the pile and wash the feet of the least of the least of the least. 
And as we're going to see here in this passage, if you do so, if you do that, not for the reason of being exalted, but if you do that, you'll be exalted. But the heart of Paul is first saying, I want you to be one, and I want you to understand the outward focus of being a Christian is always to be diving for the bottom of the pile, not elevating yourself as one who is should be receiving something you're not receiving. And then in this, these next few verses, in this very well-known passage among a lot of believers, it's called the divine kenosis passage because of the Greek word kenosis, which means to empty oneself, as we've already touched on this in this series. But actually all three, son of God, son of man, and reigning king, are contained in these next few verses. So let's read it there. Verse 6, he says, uh, Who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. That was the first message, was it not? Who being in very nature God. That Jesus as the Son of God is in nature God. That the substance of Jesus, as it has been argued and settled through the centuries, is the same as the substance of God. And in that way, he's the Son of God. He's God incarnate. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He's always been the Son of God. He didn't become the Son of God when he was begotten of the flesh, but he is, has always been the Son of God as the second part of the Trinity. You say, how can he always be the Son of God? Doesn't the Father have to come first? Scratch your head with me. There we go. Okay. Hit yourself on the forehead. Okay. Start making the mark right here. Because when you get to heaven and the Bible says, now you see through a glass dimly, then you'll see face to face, you're going to walk around like me going, oh, that's how that works. Oh, that's how that works. Oh, that's how that works. You may as well practice now. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Next verse, it says he's also the Son of Man, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. So Jesus, fully God, made himself, voluntarily set aside his godness in this way, his his rights to be God. He did not exercise his rights as God on the earth. I mean, hello, Uh, wouldn't you just plow down those Israelites with a lightning bolt? I mean, the Pharisees with a lightning bolt or something, at least the Romans? He, let it, he, he came and he lived among us as a man, filled by the Spirit, as we saw last week at his baptism, fully Son of God, set that aside to be fully man for our sake, so that he who had no sin could be made sin for us, that we might become what? The righteousness of God. I knew you wanted to say that so bad, I just said it for you. Now, today we're going to look at the third aspect of this personality or the personhood of Jesus and that's that he's reigning king. In verses 9 through 11, it says that since, who being in very nature God, because there's a therefore, we're about to read a therefore, and if we're going to study the Bible, we have to stop to see what it's therefore, right. Okay, so it connects us. He, was, he, he, he is the Son of God, laid that aside, became Son of Man, and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I love that passage. I love it. Because it tells me what's happening in my heart now as I bow to Jesus as my king. But it also tells me how I'm going to be later when I get all this garbage off of me that isn't bowing to Jesus as my king. That I'm going to fully bow to Jesus. I'm, I'm excited about that coming day. But I want you to notice here that Jesus is given to us in this third dimension of his personhood as the reigning king. That because, it says, because he became obedient to death on a cross, therefore God exalted him to the highest place. This is something that God had to do because Jesus had set aside his godness, right? 
Jesus really couldn't do this for himself because in dying for our sins and being our representative, he had to become fully human. And so he set aside his godness, died for us as the perfect lamb of God, and was dead. And God raised him from the dead, yeah, raised him from the dead, and now it says exalted him to the highest place so that now he's reigning king. Ephesians 1, verses 17 through 22 says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ... The glorious Father may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I love that. Paul says this. I keep asking that God will give you wisdom and revelation. Why? So you can be smart? So you can be Mr. Spiritual Know-it-all? No. So that you may know him better. The whole goal of studying the scriptures is not so that we can power down on people who don't know the scriptures or have some other view of the scriptures, but so that we may know him better. He wants to know us. He wants to be known. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, opened, in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power for us who believe. He said, I I just pray that your eyes would be opened up so that you could enter into this thing that's waiting to happen. And he says, that power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him, catch this, he seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Jesus had laid aside his own ability to do that, and in the being obedient to death on a cross, the Father seated him, exalted him, and seated him as a reigning king. Verse 21, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. He's going to be forever reigning king, and God, catch this, placed all things under his feet and appointed him head over everything. This is the present and the eternal status of Jesus Christ, reigning king. Reigning king. Here is my big beef with a big part of the church. Big part of the church that leaves Jesus bleeding and hanging on a cross. He ain't there. He died historically once and for all. His blood was shed for us. He is not continuing to die for you. We have got to run from these things that cause you to feel guilty and ashamed when you sin because, oh, you just put another nail in the side and the hands, the feet of Jesus. No, you didn't. He fully bore your sin on the cross, the Bible says. Done. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 10, once and for all. Laid in a tomb. He was taken off that cross. This is not not what the Bible says. He was taken off that cross. Laid in a tomb. Risen from the dead. Dwelt among us. Demonstrating himself by power and authority. And then ascended to the Father. Where he reigns. The present status of Jesus Christ is that he is reigning king. Well, if Jesus be king, then so what? If Jesus be king... What then? I got a couple things for you. You ready? Buckle up. If Jesus be king, then we must worship him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Did you hear that? If Jesus be king, then we must worship him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. The worship of God is the core reality of both the Old and the New Testaments. You've been reading this thing right. And right from the very beginning, back in Abraham's day and Isaac and Jacob, something cool would happen with God. And what would they do? They'd worship him. They'd make a pile of rocks. 
And they'd say, I never want to forget this time that I encountered God. And that develops through a sacrificial system through the Old Testament, and it culminates in the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ, and it is in the enduring power of the sacrifice made by Jesus once and for all that we worship Him. And that's the central core reality of both the Old and the New Testament is bringing worship to God. And so if Jesus is king, then we have to worship him with all we got. With all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. What does that even mean? I mean, there's so many valid variations of worship styles, are there not? I mean, you go here and we kind of go like this. You go someplace and they go like that. And you go other places and they go hanuman about it. And you know... There are so many styles of worship and valid styles of worship. I am certainly not so foolish as to say that our way of worshiping Jesus as king is the only way or even the best way. I just know it's our way. It's just our way. We're not putting on seminars for other churches telling them how to worship. We're just trying to get her done here. Authentically. We're not trying to impact other churches who have found other ways to worship Jesus as king. I don't judge them. I don't have time to evaluate them. It's a full-time job just keeping this ship pointed north. So when I say these things, I am not in any way saying anything in reference to any other church. I am certain that this is the best way for us to worship And I lead the worship ministry here, and I'm constantly endeavoring to keep the worship simple and celebrative and authentic. It's never going to be tricky here. Not for as long as I'm here. It's never going to be tricky. It's going to be simple. It's going to be celebrative. And it's going to be authentic. So what does it mean for you to worship Jesus? You're saying, well, how do I do that? I'm going to boil this down to the core simplicity. Are you ready? Say yes. The core simplicity is it means two things. First, it means to find your love for him. Your love for him. To find your love for him. I know when you're a new Christian and you hear all these people talk about loving God, it's like, ah, I'm just afraid of him. I just don't want to go to hell later, right? I mean, hello? Or was that just me? I mean, that was so me. And I came into the church and I... You know, I was just glad that I'd done the Jesus thing so I wasn't going to burn forever later. And whew, I was close and I was learning. And there was this guy in this little church that Karen and I were a part of. His name was Dale Cooper. And he prayed. And when he prayed, he prayed for like a half a freaking hour. He would just, because it was one of those churches where somebody would call on you to pray and say, hey, lead us in prayer. You know, and there were like 40 people there, maybe 100, I don't know, a small number of people. And, and whenever they would call Dale on Dale to pray, you could hear everybody lean on the pew in front of them. <laughs> A little creak. Am I right, Karen? I mean, you can kind of, kind of heal that. Here, am I right? And Virgil? Well, I know Dale used to pray this way. Maybe Virgil was the one who prayed forever. Yeah. Remember how Dale used to pray, though? He used to pray, oh, God, we love you so much. And he used to pray that a lot. And I'm like, how can you even dare say that to God? He's God, for crying out loud. He's like the Wizard of Oz, God, you know. And We're just not going to hell later because of Jesus and the cross and all that. Don't tell him stuff like that. Just say, thanks for the salvation. Just going to work my way through my life here. Not go to hell later. Come on, am I speaking anybody's language? And you come into this group of people who say, oh, we've got to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So what does that even mean? It means to find your love for him. 
Here's a big problem in the church. We're trying to copy other people's love. You have, Bill, you have a way of loving God. And it's valid. It's real. Maybe different than mine. You're more manly than I am. I think you are. (laughs) I I, I believe that. I mean, you're just just kind of tougher in general. And so I expect, I just validate your love for God. I'm saying there's different ways to love. Is there not? I love Karen. I love her. I love her. I love her. Her her kids, our kids. I guess I said our kids. Her kids. (laughs) They're all ours. Uh, Our kids love Karen, but they love her differently. I mean, Harry, do you love Karen? Yeah. Correct answer is yes. Okay, yeah. (laughs) Let me move on. Tiffany, where are you? Tiffany, you love Karen. Yeah, do you love Karen? Yeah, I know. Uh, I mean, mean, Dora, do you love Karen? Uh, You do. And I know that you love Karen. But it's a different love than my love, isn't it? It's a different love from each other. And it's a valid love. And you gotta, you got to love from where you are in relationship with God. And so I just started loving God for making a way for me not to burn later. That's how, it, that's how this love thing started. And it was a gratitude kind of love. It was a grateful kind of love for the things that he had done. And then as I began to move and, and grow over the years in my walk with Jesus, and I saw I answered prayer, well, then I could love him for the things he was doing. And now at this stage in my life of walking with Jesus for low these many decades now, it's like, you know, it's in a strange way. Of course I want to go to heaven, but Lord, even if I didn't, I would spend the rest of my life praising you and loving you for who you are. And that's been a journey. And you've got to find your love for God. You have one. And I know that most of our songs are written and our worship stuff is kind of written around that third dimension of the journey. So if that's not where you are right now, you're sort of waiting for the songs to get over with so the guy will talk. I get that. But I want to ask you just, do you love God? I mean, is there something inside of you that doesn't fear him so that you can love him? I mean, fear him reverentially, of course, but doesn't cower from him so that you can love him. That is your love for God, and it's valid. And how do you worship him with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Bart, from your love for God. You, you have a love for God. I've heard it in your voice, Bart. I've seen it. I just bless that and validate that. And worship is first finding your love for God, just identifying it, and then secondly, it means to express your love for him, to get it out, to get it out, to say it, to sing it, to dance it, to shout it, to write it on the bathroom wall, whatever it is that gets it out. So it's in it. Don't worry it on our bathroom walls, okay? <laughs> but listen, it's about expressing it. It's got to be expressed. You've got to find it before you can express it, right? Otherwise, you're just singing songs wondering how come you're not feeling what these other crazy people are feeling. You've got to find it before you can express it. But once you find it, you've got to express it. You've got to get it out. Does that make sense? That's what worship is. And it means to get over your pride and express it. The Lord revealed something to me this week. I knew it in my head, 
but I'd never felt it in my heart this way. And that is that our pride is the biggest enemy to our worship. Our pride. Our pride. Our what would another person think if I expressed our pride. Our pride. And men, we got this bad. We, we, we learned it from our daddies. We've got, a, we've got an uphill battle. It's our pride. You know there are times that something's stirring in you, say in a setting like this or a similar setting, and there's a stirring inside of you. But you just can't find a way to get it out because that's not what men do. That's pride. It is what men do. It, it really is what men do. Because our pride is not only the single biggest enemy to our worship, it's the single largest enemy to our relationship with God. Because if we are too proud to express our worship, I promise you 100% you are carrying this into your relationship with God. And there's a pride wall between you and God. And God may be speaking to you, calling you to obey, and you're going, too proud for that. Just saying. Okay, if Jesus be king, first we must worship him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Second, if Jesus be king, then we must obey him in all of the affairs of our lives. Did you hear that? We must obey him if he's king. I mean, if we say he's king and then we don't obey him, guess who isn't king? Well, he's still king, reigning, but guess who isn't king of our lives, right? If we say he's king and then don't obey him, then we're, uh, we're just, we're just, we just got a religion. Nobody wants that. I was in an interesting dinner meeting this week with half a dozen young men from the church on Tuesday night. And I just picked out some young men in the church and had pulled them together a few times and just asked them to kind of talk to me about where they are with God and what it is that we can you know, do to help them in their walk with God, hoping that it will eventually spill over into, into the whole world here. And uh, one of the things that came up among these six or seven guys, was uh, they said, what, what about the rules? So what? What about the rules? So we got to tell you, you know, you, you preach about relationship with God all the time. And he said, guys, we're, we're about the rules. What are the rules? You never talk about rules, really. He says, you don't do that. One guy said, he couldn't. He couldn't talk about the rules. He's going to talk about the relationship over the rules every day. And these guys were saying, you know, I get that it's about relationship with God, but what are the rules? I mean, and they listed this and listed that, that they'd read that Jesus said. Is that a rule or, or what's the deal? And I've been thinking about how rules since then, about how rules and relationship are are connected, and I would never want any of my good relationships to be characterized by a set of rules. I think that would stink, wouldn't it? And uh, but there's a definite connection between rules and relationships. And I was thinking about, for example, how when two people, a man and a woman, find each other, how the rules of the relationship to go, say, from from dating to engagement to marriage, and rules I thought of was you need to be faithful to your beloved, right? You can't say, yeah, you're one of seven I'm considering right now. Uh, I mean, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta lay it down, right? So that's, that's kind of a rule, isn't it? 
It's like, well, yeah, I was out with Betty the other night. Man, we had a blast. We should go there sometime, shouldn't we? I don't think so. We ain't going anywhere from here on out. Another rule is you have to listen. You have to listen to what your beloved is saying, right? I mean, listen. I know it's hard. Guys, I know we're programmed to go, uh-huh, 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 what? I know. You can do it. But you got to listen. It's a rule. You have to treat your beloved with respect. If you want this to go from where you are to engagement, marriage, these are just basic rules, aren't they? I mean, and it's not like you get up in the morning and go, no, what are the rules? It's just the, the rules that define the relationship. Well, if Jesus Christ is the reigning king, what are the rules of the relationship? Some places I've noticed some seem to make uh, the rules about moral behaviors. I, you gotta, can't do this, and you can't do that, and you can't do this. And you, that just makes me want to do them more. I don't know about you guys. Does that, am, is, am I alone in this? Tell me I can't, and I'll show you I will. Am I, I, so that doesn't get it for me. And, it, and besides, even in the times of my life where I listened to that and I caved to that, I could pull it off for a while, but my relationship with God wasn't developing. I was just unhappy. Making everybody around me unhappy, right? And what I found is that when I follow the rules of a relationship, an actual relationship with Jesus, my moral behaviors have a way of flowing from that place. It's called the fruit of the Spirit, which includes self-control. And so I'm beginning to live naturally as a believer. It takes a long time. I've been at this 40 years almost, and uh, it takes a while. Maybe I'm just in the slow group. I don't know. I'm going to give you five rules. Are you ready to follow to get into a dynamic relationship with Jesus? If there are any of these rules that you find offensive, and I think you will find at least two of them offensive, um, then you may blame the seven men who were in my office on Tuesday night. Who they are, by the way, shall remain anonymous. I'm going to give you five rules. First is set aside time every day to pray. That's a rule. Why is it a rule? Because it's showing up. It's not one of the offensive rules, by the way. That probably doesn't offend you. You just don't do it. I mean, set aside time every day to pray. I mean, set aside time. This is just showing up. I, I often hear two excuses when I lay this thing out. People say, but I don't know how to pray. I don't know how to pray. Listen, if you knew enough to say that, then you already know how to pray. Just say that to God. Just show up every day and go, I don't know how to pray. <laughs> Jesus' disciples came to him and said, Lord, teach us to pray. We've been watching you pray. You've been amazing. And they expected some big thing. He gives them the Lord's Prayer, which you can say in about 30 seconds, right? Simple. It's simple. What's on your heart? Say it to God, and then listen back. What if I don't hear anything? There you go. How about that? Come back tomorrow. It's just about showing up. If you do not set aside time to pray, you will not have a true relationship with Jesus. I hear people, when I lay this on, they say, Oh, well, I just pray, I just pray without ceasing. I pray when I'm, I'm moving. I pray." When... No, you're not. You're just thinking about it. Set aside time to pray. Talk. What kind of a relationship will a husband and wife have if they don't talk? Oh, I just think about it all day. Don't worry. It's all good. We get up. We don't talk. We don't. 
That's not a relationship. You want to have a relationship? Rules of relationship. Set aside time every day to pray. Second, read your Bible with a relational curiosity. Read your Bible with a relational curiosity. What? Here's my deal. We are taught from children to read with a kind of critical scrutiny, aren't we? We read to evaluate, read to, to, to categorize, to organize, read for informational purposes. We get that. And that's how we're taught. And so we come to our Bible and, we, and we, we approach it the same way. And instead of having a relational curiosity about what God may be saying to us, we're like, okay, well, how does this fit in with the quadrilateral of the second coming of the pre-tribulation? And we make our charts, and we're looking at the Bible as kind of a critical scrutiny rather than, what is, this, what is this God who says he loves me want to say to me? You know, if Karen and I somehow became separated for some purpose and she wrote me a love letter, letter I would not parse the verbs or dissect the grammar. I would savor it. It's the Bible. And to read the Bible with a kind of relational curiosity is a rule. Show up to pray. Listen to what he has to say. Number three, worship God. Worship God. Worship God. Find your love for him. Express your love for him. Many ways to do this. The Bible shows us sing, shout, dance. So many other ways, really just examples. Really just examples. How do you want to express the love that you have? Worship God. Worship. Only you know if you're worshiping God. Some people can be off the chart here and not worshiping God. They're just having a good time. We can't really tell. But the Bible gives us different ways to worship God. One of them is raising your hands. Do you have to raise your hands? No, but it's one way. I'd like to ask everybody in the room to do me a favor. Would you do this? Raise your hands. How many of you are like, I don't want to do this? That's pride. I know. You can put it down. Put it down. That's pride. I know. I would have felt, I'm not even sure I'd have done it. I would have been like, Lame. That's my pride. That's my pride. That's my pride. I want to say this. The Bible's pretty clear about raising hands. A simple expression. It's a simple expression can mean so many things. And and I, I want to say I want to go out on a limb and say, okay, so you don't always have to pray, raise your hands to worship God, but since it is such an obvious model of worship, I would be curious about that if I never raised my hand. Never. Like, I ain't doing that. Because if the pride... I told you some of you are going to be offended, right? Here we go. It speaks to pride. Just read the Bible, read the Bible, read the Bible with a relational curiosity, and I think you're going to find it hard to keep your hands in your pockets. Especially with the next one, tithe. Tithe is a rule of relationship with Jesus being king. All right, dig in, buckle up. Tithe. What is tithing? Some of you are so new to this, you're like, well, that's not even a word I've ever heard before. The Bible teaches us to give 10% of our income to the work of the Lord. 
The Bible teaches us this in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Not 2%, not 8%, but 10%, the best 10% of our income to the work of the Lord. The first 10%. And then we discover our, we determine our lifestyle from what's left. We don't determine our lifestyle from 100% and go, now i got to figure out how to tithe. Oh, I can't do it. I can't do it. You're living the wrong lifestyle. God gives you 100%. He says, I'm going to give you 100. Ten's mine. It's a rule of relationship to bring it back. If you don't bring it back, you're going to affect the relationship. Jesus is king. Is, are we saying Jesus is king? Well, here's what Jesus said about tithing. He said, yeah, this you should do and much more. So we can't say Jesus is king and not tithe. We can't say Jesus is king and go, well, I'm doing that a different way. I'm time tithing. I've heard them all. It's about bringing 10% of our income to the work of the Lord. Done. It's about moving the decimal point on the check one place. It's done. And it's watering it down to call it anything else because Jesus said, yes, this you should do and much more. Why is that? Because at the heart of a relationship with Jesus Christ is living a lifestyle of sacrifice. Living a sacrificial lifestyle. If you, if you won't do that, then you won't do the other. If you won't do that, then the other becomes a sham. These are the words of Jesus. I told you, this, I, I know this is going to offend some. And I'm sure you can find a church somewhere in this city that's like a 7% church. you got to tithe. Am I saying there's never a time that you don't tithe? Of course not. Jesus actually gives us a, a provision for not tithing when we are helping a family member. But that's the end of it. That's the only provision he ever makes. And you're saying, but I, I don't make as much as you, Tom. Guess what? I didn't used to make as much as me. And we tithe. And we lived a sacrificial lifestyle. And some of you were there 20 years ago when this church was a fledgling church and I was making phone calls for school book fairs as my job and just getting by the way so many... I was, I was the most educated paper boy in the Columbus dispatch system. <laughs> my manager used to come by at 5.30 in the morning. He'd say, good morning, doctor. <laughs> Hi, Rick. <laughs> You're saying, you tithe then? Yep. You had five kids at home then. You tithe then? Yep. They used to wear bobos. So you remember bobos? That's what they used to call the off-brand sneakers. They weren't Nikes. Am I complaining? Not a bit. I'm just saying, don't look at me and say, I can't tithe. Of course you can. It means moving the decimal point over one place. There was a woman in the Old Testament. She had enough food left to make for her son and herself and die. And the prophet Elijah came along and said, uh, why don't you use that for me? That would have been a good time to go, are you paying attention? I think this is one of those provisions. And she said, okay. And every time she went back, God had provided her with enough to get through the famine. I think if we don't tithe, it just speaks volumes about everything else. It speaks volumes about what we're really, how deeply we're really into this thing. Because money is our idol. 
Money is our dependence, our self-reliance. I'm creeping up toward retirement. And I don't have enough. I'm going to be living in your basement, Ron. All right? And I could use that and say, well, there's a reason. I better take my tithe and put that in there because I've been serving the Lord. That'd be an excuse, right? Ain't doing it. Ain't doing it. It just speaks volumes about everything else. These rules don't earn God's favor. These rules determine the resulting relationship. And then the last one should offend the rest of you. Live in community with other believers. Live in community with other believers. I don't mean just go to the same church. I mean jump into community with other believers. I don't know if you've been reading this Bible thing, but Jesus is not your king. Jesus is king of the community of believers. Jesus is king of the church. Jesus is king of the body of Christ. Jesus is king, not just for you, but he's king over the body. And for you to not be involved in relationship with other people in a community, in the same community, people who can watch you go through your sin and failures and love you and pick you up and pray for you, then you're not living it out. Jesus said, catch this, John 13, 35. He said, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another, right? Have you heard that, anybody? By this shall everybody know that you are my disciples. I think he could have just as well said that now. By this shall everyone know that I am your king, if you have love one for another. You can't do that in isolation. You've got to do that in the context of community. Heart to heart, face to face, blood and guts community with each other. And you need to live in the same community, fellowship by this, until God would geographically move you. Am I saying there's never a time to change churches? No. But I'm saying the devil's having a heyday with keeping people moving from church to church to church to church to church to church because they like the way the pastor parts his hair better. If he can keep you moving, he has effectively circumvented the authority of Jesus Christ in your life. He said, but yeah, but I had a real falling out there. Welcome to the world. Read Matthew 18. Get it right. Get it straightened out. Welcome to the world. If you're here, stay here. If I haven't pissed you off yet, I just did. But you're stuck here. You're stuck here. You're stuck here. And sometimes it's fun, and sometimes it ain't fun, but you're here, and God has called you here. And you don't have an excuse to go somewhere else because you don't like something. It's about living in community, face-to-face, heart-to-heart, working it out. If you're here, then stay here. If you're here from somewhere else, go back. Go back. Go back. These are the rules. These are not so much rules to earn God's favor. As I said, they're behaviors that result in relationship. So my question is, is Jesus Christ king? Is that true or is it just a song? 
If Jesus Christ is king, then he's to be obeyed. There's nothing in these behaviors, these five behaviors, that I cannot back up with the actual words of Jesus from the Bible. And you know it. And here's my guarantee. You ready? I'm going to do something weird. Here's my guarantee. If you consistently practice these five behaviors for a period of one year and do not experience the presence of God, then I will find a way to persuade the elders to refund 100% of your tithe. If you come to me a year from now, separate every day. I consistently read my Bible with a relational curiosity. I worshiped God. I found, I found my love, and I worshiped Him. Right? I tithed. And I, I found my way into this community and to some other believers, brothers and sisters who look me in the eye, who know my stuff. If you can say, I have done that for the last 365 days, and you say, and I have not yet encountered God, I will find a way for the church to write you a check. Father, we want to be your sons and your daughters. We want to experience your lordship. We want to be men and women who surrender to you as king. We know in our minds that you're king, Lord. Now we pray for the power of the Holy Spirit to come and teach us how to, how to do it.